What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Everything College Basketball Podcast, episode 178. I'm, of course, your host, Josh Burton, and joining me today, pair of my teammates, Mr. Peyton Burton, Mr. Trevor Everett. Fellas, we got some stuff to talk about today. As we are sitting here, we are on the dot three or three weeks away from Selection Sunday. Actually, in three weeks' time from today, we will be finding out the brackets. They'll be at the top of the show. I can't believe it feels like this season has went by so fast. Peyton and I discussed this yesterday watching some games. It's went by like really quick, but we are three weeks away from Selection Sunday as of today, as of this recording. What a wild time in college basketball. Fellas, how are you doing on this beautiful Sunday actually here in Indiana? I'm doing really good. I uh, woke up this today, um, watched Real Madrid and my soccer club win their game against Sevilla, so it was nice to uh, get a dub there. Um, excited for today's episode. There's a lot of controversy that happened over these last couple of days. A lot of stuff that we're going to talk about, get into. We are three weeks away from Selection Sunday, and also uh, me and Josh are like two weeks away from going to the OVC title game uh, for the second year straight. So announcing that, we got credentialed. I think it was actually yesterday or two days ago, whenever yeah. it was. I got the email. I woke up, I got the email. And uh be cool to go back to Evansville. It was a hell of an experience last year. Can't wait to go back. And a lot of stuff to get to. I can't wait. Just like Peyton, I too experienced a W today. I took a little break from ball, at least basketball, the orange ball, uh, to go hang out on a diamond for a little bit. Got to see the Fighting Camels uh, play Ohio Bobcats. Got to hang out with some friends, catch up a little bit with some folks that uh, went to Ohio. Shout out to Ian Frazier from the Greenlight Podcast for coming down. But um, got to experience one of the hottest teams in college baseball. Man, it was a really, really fun time today. Weather was perfect. Um, but yeah, like Peyton said, just super excited to uh, to know that everything is just churning down to the last three weeks here and man i mean look i get started back a nice break on a sunday but uh, i got a cbs sports network game tomorrow don't know if Fanta's going to be there just yet fingers crossed get to see Fanta back in Bowie's creek but uh wilmington and uh, campbell's tomorrow for me so super excited to get back rolling this week dude i was pumped you sent me that that you were at the campbell baseball game i love baseball like i've made that very clear i mean i got my reds hat on the lights kind of blocking the logo but nonetheless i love baseball Happy baseball's coming back, but we are coming down the home stretch college basketball. And Peyton talked about just a little bit, touched on it. So let's get into it. Before we get into the game that this occurred in, the controversy, I feel like every every year, multiple times a year, at least twice a year, it feels like this topic comes up. It was a center of much needed debate yesterday. And we, the three of us, fall on different sides. Now, I do want to preface this before we get into it. These are our opinions. Nobody's right or wrong in this opinion, right? That I think that's get that gets lost in today's society where people get so strung out that feel like they've always got to be right, that they get real aggressive. There's no aggression here. We're going to give you our different points of view. And what we're talking about yesterday, Wake Forest upsets Duke at home, gets a much needed win that pretty much should lock them in the NCAA tournament, barring a collapse late in the year here. But the court rush comes. We all expect it, understands. But kind of like Caitlin Clark got a little roughed up a couple weeks ago, Kyle Filipowski gets hurt. We don't know the full extent of the injury, but he gets bum rushed. He's hurt. We Again, let's hope it's not serious. The dude doesn't miss time. But it brings up the conversation again around court storming. Now, here is my deal. Actually, you know what? I'm going to let Trevor take it because Trevor took a little bit of heat. Again, some yep. people can't separate opinion from fact. They always feel like they've got to be right. Trevor is on the opinion of loving court storming. 
And Trev, I'll let you take this away. This was kind of your idea here. So plead your case here because I am curious to hear it. And look, I like that you laid it out with, look, there has to be a clear cut. People have to understand that we should all be in the same vein of a solution, right? So I want to make that very clear. It's less about a case. So I just wanted to start with making three things very clear because in a hundred and what are we at? 40 characters now with a tweet. It feels like it gets shorter every time. Every day I try to tweet longer and longer and they get shorter and shorter. Unless you uh, pay for the blue for... check. Not happening yet. So sorry. No. No, sorry, Elon. But um. I just want to make three things abundantly clear and then we can kind of discuss it however you'd like to because uh, I got to jump after this. But um, three things. First of all, one to those that were attacking me for this reason, I was in no way defending what happened is good. Like I'm just like that. The fact that I'm having to start with that is the problem of the, of this conversation, right? Um, there should have been a better plan in place by Wake. I'm sure we'll get into that. But like I agree with Greenberg and others who have been in the process, who have been part of Court Storms, that kind of thing. Like there are things. I know Creighton Yukon just the other day handled it well. Someone posted a photo, was conveniently timed right after the thing. Like, hey, this is what it looked like after this, right? No problem at that game. But just I want to make that clear. Not defending what happened was good. Point number one. Point number two, uh, shout out to Connor for the comments on YouTube. The yep. term impossible to police was what was getting people so bent out of shape from what I was talking about. Uh, it got taken way out of context. So what I want to be clear on is that I am saying it is impossible to completely prevent without what we'll get into, without ridiculous extreme measures that have to be put into place at some point. Um, which, And let me be clear. Impossible to police without completely preventing with what measures are currently in place. That should be what I mean for clear point number two. And then number three, you led with it. I'll kind of just kind of put a bow on this for that. I am obviously pro court storm. Let me just like that probably was abundantly clear yesterday. I know Peyton had asked about it and some others like had thrown it out there. I'll just make the case on why I am. College basketball is is a couple of really important adjectives to me personally. It's unique, fun, exciting, and authentic. Those are four things that I think should always be true in college basketball. And people need to realize that court storming is part of that, right? It's a college. Uh, yeah, I didn't go to college, and I feel this way, right? We're tied together, the three of us specifically, right? And even feel a little bit with some of the history in Illinois. I promise I'm almost done. We're tied together in how rich basketball history is in Indiana, in Illinois, in North Carolina, right? All these things are important to us, right? So we've been around the game long enough, and we know that these are authentic parts of college basketball, right? People shouldn't be trying to come at people about the opinion, whether it's fun or not, whatever. Like, it just is. It's part of what college basketball is beautiful. And instead, they need to try to offer a valid, legitimate way to stop it. And honestly, sans what Phil said, I didn't get a single good suggestion yesterday. Phil was the only person that made it very clear that there needs to be a, if somebody just officially puts their foot down and says you'll get forfeited, it is what it is. And that's unfortunately what we may end up at. And NBA arenas obviously have figured it out because of the legitimacy of the security level. So, well, and I, again, sense. I... No, I, I get that. And here's the thing about verbalization. When you say it out loud, you can explain it better. A lot of things like um, sarcasm, they say, gets lost through text and stuff like that. It's hard to gauge what you what somebody actually means sometimes through through words. And so the explanation makes it more clear where you're coming from. I'm, I'm at the standpoint. I think court storming, the right court storming, is fun. Meaning when we used to have, if you go back, not even let's say 10 years ago and beyond that, when you'd have a big time upset, the first one that comes to mind was the John Wall year at Kentucky. Kentucky's undefeated. They've got this superstar team. They're number one. They go into South Carolina, Devin Downey upsets them. Hell of a court storm. That was appropriate. I feel like court storming now has got to the point where 
you see random like unranked versus unranked court stormings and it, to me it's overblown at times the right one like if it makes sense i'm fine with it but we're talking about security and safety and i do think there has to be something maybe we'll get more extremes maybe it is forfeiture of games maybe it's a personal i mean we've got cameras all over the building now so i know they're like well if you got eleven thousand people rushing the storm or rushing the court how are you going to individualize them well i mean we've got high tech technology that if they say beforehand if you rush this floor before the opposing team's off the court and we see you on camera you're hit with a 500 fine like that's you know you want to get to people get to their wallet book most of the time there's got to be something and I can't believe I'm agreeing with Douster here, but he got text from a, an anonymous head coach last night that makes sense where the, the coach told him, we have the shot clock. If you've got to be understanding that if a, the home team is in reach of an upset where a potential court storming happens, well, then late in the game, throw up the shot clock, put 30 seconds on the clock, hold the, the fans back so they know, let the clock count down, get the opposing team off the floor who just got upset, and then once that clock hits zero, you're still getting your moment to rush the floor. There's got to be something because if it doesn't stop and there's not a solution, Filipowski and Caitlin Clark won't be the last. And unfortunately, it'll keep going until somebody, a big name, gets severely hurt because of fans thinking that they have a belonging on the court, which we're fans, we're, we're in the media too, but we don't belong on that court when other players are on that floor. It's a sacred ground for somebody like me who grew up in the sport. That court is sacred. Fans stay the hell off until it's appropriate to come on. Peyton, I'll let you hear your thoughts. I don't have strong opinions on this whole court rushing, court rushing debate. We've talked about it multiple times over years doing this podcast, and it's been a constant debate every single year because it happens like almost every other game now. And that's my whole argument. It's like to Trev, everybody can have their own opinions and that's fine. The only thing like I questioned Trev on on Twitter, which by the way, the whole like separating opinions from facts. I look back at Trev's tweet. The first thing he says is I completely agree what happened to Kyle Filipowski is bad. So he's admitting like he agrees with that. Just people can't separate that, which is. They can't, man. Thank Not you. today's society. Everybody I'm thinks they've got to be right. I led my it, list with that still. <laughs> that should show you how bad this has gotten. I led yeah. my list with, let me be clear, even though it's the first freaking line of the tweet. It was the first line of his tweet. I just wanted I know to mention that. I know where you're, I want you to finish your point. I know where you're going about the uh, authenticity and Josh alluded to a little bit, but I want to, I have a thing I thought about in the last 24 hours that, that I'll still defend in that regard, but go ahead. I want to hear the rest of what you're saying. So uh, my whole thing on Trav and I questioned him is like, why is, cause he mentioned it in one of those tweets I read or one of his replies that college basketball or court rushing is good for college basketball. And I thought about that and I read that tweet a couple of times in my head. And I just simply just wanted to ask him about it. What do you mean by that? Because to me, if you take court rushing away, I know John Shia said in his post interview uh, on the post, uh, post press conference that when are we going to ban court rushing and all this stuff? I don't care if it I don't care if it stays. I don't care if it goes. I really don't care because I don't think college basketball is going to be better with it. And I don't think it's going to be bad without it either. You have question Why I don't think it's as unique as it used to be. Top fifteen teams like Creighton literally just court rushing against the number one team in the country, UConn, just last week. Why? We have rivalry games. Indiana beats Purdue. Indiana beats Kentucky. No court rushing. Austin Rivers posted it on Twitter. You're just basically admitting your program's inferior when you just do this shit. You have to expect that you're going to go into these bigger games and win. 
that no I'm, th- no and that's per- that's i knew that's where you were going with it and yeah. the more i thought about the wording of it again where is it good for it okay yeah maybe i could hear that but let me defend the little guy for a second because i think that's where it gets lost in this translation i've been a part of two court storms live this year right i'm about to have game number 32 tomorrow and honestly what happened like what, <laughs> I, I, got, I gotta get that to stop i'm like making my points better with balloons <laughs> it's great. Get that. Uh, i know i know how to do this one with the with the fireworks the yeah. people on youtube are gonna love this but um I wish anyway my new pc did that I, I still like whatever apple dumb all right so basically i'm defending the little guy right like this will be game 32 for me tomorrow and if campbell beats uncw i'm probably not gonna cry about it if they court storm because they haven't like they that rivalry goes back so many years and like all the other reasons i could give you the reason I defend the little guy in this is because there's I've been a part of two court storms this year live, many more before in my life just as fans. Uh, both of them were for the little guy, right? App State, I say little guy for the sake of how we view college basketball. App State beats Auburn at home in their first top 20. I think I actually think top, Auburn actually wasn't ranked at the time. I think it was their first Power 5 win in program history at home. It was or something like that of that nature, right? App State had never been to that kind of height as a program, and now they may be one of the best mid-majors in, in the tournament, right? So that, to me, deserved it, right? There was 5,500 students, and there was even more fans. I agree with that. Right, so that I, I agree with that. That's exactly who I'm defending in this argument. Now, I agree with you. Some of the inferiority, like, that could even apply to Creighton here, right? That was their first or second win all time against the top five program. I think first one at home or something like that. Something ridiculous where Creighton, they're inferior. Let's just be real with it. Sorry, I'm, this is probably, I am not, the approval rating of me and ECB and Creighton fans <laughs> is not high. Let me just be clear. Like, Creighton, you are an inferior program to UConn. Let's just be upfront about that, right? That does prove the impurity, but that's great. At the end of the day, it goes back to my passion point about those fans and those students who may have never experienced something like that. They're in college. It's an authentic thing from start to finish. The Big East has that feeling to it. They should. I think there's no problem with that, right? And they handled it well, going back to that point, right? They handled it perfectly well. I'll find the tweet, and I'll send it to Josh to put it in the uh, post-production part of this if you can. But, like, it was perfectly executed, got UConn off the floor. The second torch storm, it just backs up my App State point, was UNCW Charleston, right? There's a clear history between those two programs, especially since Pat Kelsey and, and Coach Siddle have taken over those two programs. They hate each other. It's a, like a budding rivalry, and those students had already been packing it out for so many hours at that game that there was just no way you were keeping them off the floor. They were jumping over the benches, and that wasn't handled well. I'm not defending that in any way, but I'm defending the little guy in that argument that regardless of the inferiority point, I think it does apply to power five, but the two court terms I've seen were completely deserved this year because those programs had been at that point where they had earned it. Well, here's the thing. I don't think we're that far off because I agree. Like I said, it goes back to my point of um, certain circumstances. I'm all for it. Like those small schools are exactly who court rushes or should be for. Like they should be for like when Butler, I mean, not necessarily Butler is that small. They do have history, but like when they beat Gonzaga, like 10 years ago, Gonzaga was, uh, I think top two or three in the country. Butler beat him at Hinkle. Okay. Court storm, right? Butler was still, I think at that time they were in the horizon or about to transition. So a little bit understandable. If a team like when North Carolina would randomly go on the road with Roy Williams, cause he wanted to say, screw it. I'll play on the road. And they went to, let's say, Wilmington. And Wilmington hosted them and beat them, rushed the floor. I don't want to see Creighton rush the floor in Connecticut. I'm sorry. Like, when you're undefeated, let alone – I mean, Creighton's never lost to Connecticut in Omaha. They've never lost. So are we going to rush the floor every time they beat them? Like, Indiana started it. And I get it. Indiana was their first major win coming off this horrible stretch. Tom Crean's rebuilding the program. They beat number one Kentucky, a big-time rival. They rushed the floor. But then they rushed the floor again, and they rushed the floor again, and they rushed the floor again. It's to the point, like, 
you're Indiana. Stop rushing the floor. Like, or you're the yeah. X team playing another X team at the big program. Stop rushing the floor. Like you have no business on the floor. You are a fan. And I get professional games are completely different. But like you talking about waiting for a team to watch, like I go back to the Cubs. They went on with what was a hundred years without winning a World Series. Their fans didn't even think about jumping the field to get on there because they, they know better. They can't. Which is, which is my whole point. Can't. It's my whole point about the authenticity of college basketball. And agree, if it goes away forever, then sure, I think college basketball goes on and, and is still one of the greatest things ever invented. But it does give people opportunity to enjoy in its purest form, right? March Madness in its pure. I could give you – we could do a whole segment in the magazine next year about, like, what makes college basketball unique, right? And you could ask a million – honestly, ask people like Truly Donovan. Ask people like these anonymous people that, that have such a strong opinion about the sport who are making a living who don't even have their identity out there to defend themselves, right? Like, use them as a perfect example of – tell me another sport where somebody like Truly Donovan exists. Like, I'm just using him. Like, shout out to Trilly for this. Like, I'm just giving him the, the props he deserves because he's another example, right? I'm obviously leaving out all, all the, you know, other people like Curry and his mothers, but I'm just giving you an example of just many things that make this sport so unique, which is my whole argument about defending the, the lack of expansion. Unless, again, for the little guy, if I want to sit here and continue to uh, favor the little guy, right, then if those guys get more chances in the tournament, sure. But I love the product that we're currently in. It is what it is. I'm just defending the 68 part of it. So. Yeah, and this doesn't show up. It shows Facebook user. I got a feeling I know who it is. It's Johnny. I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's our guy, Johnny. About halfway says, through, I realized it was Johnny. Yeah, he says, as an IU fan, I'm vehemently opposed to court storms, at least until the opposing team is off the floor. Player okay. safety has to be paramount to a fan's experience getting on the floor. We get it. Emotions are high, and there is a quote-unquote cool factor to it. But you can't permit it sometimes, but not others. Listen, Correct. that's what we've been arguing. I don't, I don't think any of us necessarily want court storming to go away, but – there has to be something like fans have to be educated. I think it's the first thing they have to be educated prior to the game. If you think if you're the underdog team coming in and the buildings rowdy and you think, boy, if we win this game, there's a chance we can win this game. Everybody has to get the fans educated, stay off the floor until we get the opposing team off. And then you're free to go get on the floor. Enjoy this. Soak it up. We have to do something because Phil Pawski and Caitlin Clark, unfortunately, I think is only going to be the start. I think if this doesn't get under control, unfortunately, we're going to have some bad stuff come down the road. And that'll be sad. And also, you, fans know better because you've never seen it at March Madness. No, I've never seen it at an NCAA tournament game. Floor, it's, players, because they know better. So why, when you're in your home building, do you not know better? Like, if we're being real, they're playing those in the in – the, it's no different than the Super Bowl, right? Like, we're – those games are played in these larger professional venues that are more handled for the scenario is my point. There's a better plan in place, whether that's the NCAA's fault, the arena's fault, the team's fault, the administration of the team's fault. Like I'm just giving you all the people that it could be. That's my only pushback is like it, it doesn't happen in the Super Bowl, you know, minus one guy who jumps on the field to be a streaker in the middle. Well, he's of the got a prop bet too. <laughs> whatever. He's right? got a prop bet on it too. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he, he's going to get out of jail and be a hundred thousand dollars richer, like whatever. Right. Who cares, yeah. Right. But that doesn't happen at those neutral sites because of, to Phil's point, the, the more serious nature of it, right? Like that's something that college athletics will probably never pay for like the extra, you're just not going to 
college athletics, again, going back to the small guy, they're not going to pay for security of that level. They can't afford it. Like whether people tell me they can or can't not, whatever. It is what it is. But those, I, I get the whole neutral site thing, and it goes back to the same point of the professionals where just that level of security, like we treat that stuff in a stronger regard. I'm not an international soccer fan by any means, but you two are, right? Mm-hmm. It yep. doesn't happen over there, and those are probably the biggest fans and rowdiest people. They set yeah, off, nuts. They set the off flares. They nuts. set off flares inside it's, of these arenas crazy. for crying out loud, guys. Yeah. Like, and guess what? They don't storm the court because a plan's in place, and we've been here 20 minutes and haven't actually laid out a plan. That's, the that's again, back to land my plan on the argument, because I know I, I'm sure y'all didn't want to spend 20 minutes on this. But no, I, I'm just, I knew I it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. The whole yeah. point I was making with my tweet, which I should have probably worded it better, again, talking about the character problem there, uh, with letters and how many I have. But the whole point I was making was no one was able to give me a case. People were all just really mad about it and no actual good answer. And even Phil's wasn't a solution. Phil's was just a, hey, let's put the absolute gavel down. And it sure, it's a solution, but it's also what would go against how I feel about it uh, and which would, I think, ruin it. But my point is, is no one actually gave a legitimate answer or argument to why. It was just reasons for why things could be different. Really, the only, if I could have, give this guy a shout out, the only really good one that I thought was hilarious was Coach K stopped a court storm against North Carolina. Screaming at I him, forgot man. about that. Like, obviously, Cameron Indoor is a small environment. It really is. Like, it's intimate enough that you could probably yell and make that happen. And I just thought that was funny to add to Coach K's lore. But. The point is, is no one actually gave a legitimate solution, which is why we're here today talking about it. Let's before you get out, because I know you've got to bounce and you wanted to jump in on this topic, which I think has been awesome. Real quick, in 90 seconds, let's come up with some kind of collective. It won't be a firm solution, oh, but God. what we think could help. And I go back again. I kind of like what the, the anonymous head coach told Douster. Put the shot clock up. If you know, like especially if the home team is up like eight, nine points or six, seven points and there's a call like. 10 seconds left go ahead and put the shot clock up or put some kind of clock up i think it's something like that i think we've got it's got to start with educating the fans too though i think education is number one let these college students know if you step on this floor before the opposing team is off the floor there is punishment coming not to the school because i've seen stuff being thrown around well punish the school five hundred thousand. Forfeit the win. It's not. They're not going to care. We could have a win forfeiture. Do we all agree on this? There could be a win forfeiture in place. And there's three. I said this to a guy verbatim. There are 362 idiotic college students like chances oh. of college students messing the rule up, they're going to forfeit a win at some. Well, how many? How many we would agree, be right? like a? Oh yeah, how many yeah. would be like an opposing fan that would be like, wow, you know, I'll just rush the floor in a neutral shirt, right? Yeah, in a neutral exactly. shirt, exactly. Yeah, and I'm we'll win. get yeah. the win overturned. So I don't know if Stupid. you can forfeit the wins, but I like the idea of like some kind of clock. I love I the clock edu- idea. I'm glad you brought it up. It's incredible. Uh, I, whoever, uh, I wish a coach would own up to who said that. It's an incredible solution. I think education's just as important. You have to educate these guys, guys and girls, to be fair. You have to educate them to just stay off the floor. This floor is sacred. You're not good enough to be out there. Just let them get off the floor. Give 30 seconds to a minute, and then you can have your fun. But I think education, I think a clock, any other solutions that we could bundle together to help fix this. I do have one more that I think would help your point even more and allow for needing less time is eliminate the handshake line. Sportsmanship exactly. happens enough exactly. coaches, because the coaches were in the middle. Yeah. The coaches were in the middle. Here's the thing, right? Here's why we eliminate it, right? 
Forbes, and it happened in like Steve Kerr, and uh, I didn't actually watch the whole thing. I need to go back and watch this. But Steve Kerr and Steve Clifford were doing their final handshake, and then something I can't remember what happened. I, I haven't watched everything in the game yet. I haven't recorded, but uh, something happened over there, and they were like turning their back, and they were like, "I'm not going to repeat what they said." But they were like, "What the blank? Oh my god, yeah. what's going on over there?" Right? And there's 1.8 seconds left, no court storm, nothing like that in the professional game. But they were are if a court storm happens they already aren't going to shake hands anyway. The players aren't going to do it, right? So why do it in an instance where you have ammo, right, in the Southland, where I think it was Southland, uh, Incarnate Word, right, where that, that brawl broke out, right? Yeah. Those things are already happening. New Mexico State and Incarnate Word. The coaches, I think, still need to do something, right? I think there's always been this tradition of coaches doing it. I, I have a, I have no problem with that, right? You well, have what about COVID? Area. At COVID, when you didn't want to hold touch, you'd see coaches just point to each other. You didn't have to touch hands. Yep. And they just point to each other. Tunnel. Yep. Yeah. Or yeah. obviously some, some again, smaller venues, one tunnel only. UNCW yeah. is a famous place for that. Trask, you literally walk through the fans to get to the locker room. It's very uncomfortable as a media person. It, like, blocks your walk back right. to the media room. It was very, very, like, I could see it going wrong in a lot of cases. And Purdue's like that, too. Uh, yep, uh, Mackey's around yeah. that. But, you know, Trev, I know you got to go. You got a family dinner. I w I'm glad you came on because, again, we can disagree agree to disagree, and that's what makes this fun. If we all have the same opinion – then what kind of fun life would that be? What kind of world would this be? But I will say, people got to understand, you can't change somebody's opinion by telling them they're wrong. Like, that's their opinion. It's their opinion. You don't have to be right all the time. So just step back. If you guys were giving Trev a bunch of shit, step back and understand, it's his opinion. He's not right. He's not wrong. You're not right. You're not wrong. I'm not right. I'm not wrong. It's an opinion. That's what makes this shit fun. Trev, we appreciate the the hopping on and explaining that verbatim. Can I do my shout outs? Since yeah, I'll go ahead. For go the ahead. End. Yeah, go ahead. I, have, I have a quick shout out. Just a shout out to the women's game as a whole for how incredible it's been in the last few weeks. I had Talia yeah. Goodman on my show a few days ago. Um, she's incredible in what she's doing in her work. So just to give a huge shout out to her. Um, Ohio State just locked up the, uh, the Big Ten title there, but there's like a Titan race at the top of the Big Ten. So just give a big shout out to the uh, to, to women's basketball as a whole and how exciting it's going to be. Cleveland's going to be a spot to be, I think, this year for, uh, for the women's Final Four. For sure. Uh, Texas. Iowa, Indiana's got a sneaky good team still. South Carolina is the beast of the women's college basketball. Connecticut still, I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun. I completely agree. Shout out the women of college basketball. Trev, thank you for hopping on. We will see you Thursday, my friend, and go enjoy your dinner with your folks. Later. <laughs> that was too funny. I love that. <laughs> yeah, those Apple things are funnier now, man. Um, we appreciate Trevor hopping on explain that because he did get a lot of grief for it. And at the end of the day, Peyton, it's just opinion. It's yeah. just opinion. Just one more thing. I'll, I'll bring up Kano's thing here. He said, my senior year of high school, we upset the top two teams in our league, kept one from getting the gold ball, and guess why our student section didn't stay on the floor. This is a point that I want to bring up. It's funny how collegiate sports seems to have the most, like, issues with, like, fans than any other sport and just in the world, like, period. Like, I remembered vividly when I was a kid when our high school team, Edinburgh, won the sectional championship for the first time in, like, I don't even know since how long it was. Since 1973. Yeah, however many years. That was back in, like, 2010, 2011 we won it. basically 40 years. Yeah. yeah, but 40 years it took us to get to a sectional championship. We won that. I remember all of us was around the floor. They had it blocked off. They were doing ropes. the cele the whole they ropes and everything. Yep. We were all were, everybody was blocked off. They did the ceremony, gave hats off to whoever we played, gave us a trophy, and then after all that was done, they let the ropes off, and we all basically court rush. 
Yep. They waited. Why can't we? That was one a high school ball. Why can't we do like shit like that and put it into collegiate sports? It makes no sense to me. There's got to be something. But we've spent almost 30 minutes debating this, talking about it. I think it's been a great topic conver- or conversational piece here. But let's get into the actual game that we were talking about. Duke goes on the road to Wake Forest. Wake desperately needed this, Peyton. They needed it for the resume. We talked about it. I think with this win yesterday, they beat Duke 83-79. I think this secures them a spot in the field of 68. Hunter Salas, 29 points, six rebounds, one assist to three turnovers. Peyton, let me ask you this, and I was going to ask Trev if he could have joined the whole show because I'm curious on his thoughts on this. If Wake Forest was battling with Duke, Carolina, and Virginia for at least a share of the ACC title, Right, if they were just a couple games better, I don't see how you don't give Hunter Salas the MVP of the league. I think he's maybe the MVP of the league right now, but you know, they usually give it to the team who at least, if not wins it, finishes second or you know, has a really good year in conference play. Hunter Salas has been all American level this year, all ACC potential ACC player of the year. An All-American, one of the top three teams. He's been phenomenal since transferring in to, or from Gonzaga. What do you think about Hunter Salas? Do you think that they will not give it to him and maybe give it to like an R.J. Davis or somebody? But if Wake was better, he would have this locked up. If Wake could finish like in the top three this season, which is not going to happen, then I think Hunter Salas definitely deserves it. But the fact is, like they're on the bubble, and you mentioned that win. It's a major must-win scenario for them. Lenardi, we'll talk about later on if you want. Lenardi still has on the first team out. So they still got a little bit me. They still got a little bit more work to do. Um, because I just checked the the, the first the, the first team out of the tournament um uh, compared to him and his uh bracketology. So they still got a little bit more work to do, but Hunter Salzman, 29 points, 11 and 13 from the field, very efficient night, only missed two shots, six rebounds, played 39 minutes. I mean, this kid was phenomenal. He's been great all season long, really good in a- ACC play. But yeah, I agree. If Wake Forest could be a little bit a little bit better and finish like a top half of the conference, and I don't think you can't give it to anyone else other than Hannah Salas. Our guy, Jonathan Warner, we're going to bring his bracketology up later in the show. He has them today in his recent update. He has them as a 10. So they are not only in, they are solidly in. They are currently a 10 in his South region. So I think they're a lock. I think yesterday's win locked it up for him. Besides Hunter Salas, Peyton, they got 18 from Andrew Carr. They got uh, 12 from Cam Hildreth. They got 15 from Kevin Boopy Miller. This is a good Wake Forest team. Like, this is a good Wake Forest team that I think could win a game in the tournament. Um, when we talk about Duke, Peyton, 17 from Filipowski, 15 from McCain, 16 from Roach, and 14 from Proctor. Proctor played well. Coming off the bench, he played well. They didn't get much from Mark Mitchell in this game. This isn't a bad loss for Duke, right? Because this is an in-state rival. They're playing a hungry team desperate for a win. It's only their sixth loss of the year, fourth in conference. I do think it almost kills them in the ACC title race. But your thoughts on Duke, uh, was it just can you chalk it up as just being one of those games? Yeah, I think so. Duke's still a game behind North Carolina um, in the conference race. So they still got a chance, obviously, that – important 
uh, second second leg of that matchup when they go out Cameron indoor and play against Court Carolina is going to be very very important if they want to win a share of the ACC this year. But Duke's got some stuff they need to figure out. You know, in-state rival who shoots the ball really well from three and it showed in this game, fifty three percent from the field on three point line for Wake. Duke got to shot the ball well from three as well. 11 out of 25, 44%. Duke's got some stuff they got to figure out on their bench. They didn't have very many bench points. They don't look like – oh, they had 17. They had a little bit more than I expected. But Tyrese Proctor, it's been a shame. that He's still a very, very talented player. He's probably going to be very, very important when they go into March. Um, he's going to be a guy that needs to be good like almost every single night for them to make a run. But Foster only had eight points. Blake's played – only three minutes, had zero points, didn't really do much. Obviously, Filipowski, Mark Mentoring mentioned, didn't really do much at all. They just got some stuff they need to figure out on their bench if they want to contend this year and potentially make a Final Four run. But they still got the talent. It's the crazy thing about it. Uh, we talked about the ACC conference race. You know, Wake Forest is up to 20th in Ken Palm now. They're 18 and 9. You look at their resume, they're, they're kind of marquee wins. They got the Duke win yesterday. They got a nice win against NC State. I think that's a quad two. I'd have to go check the net. They've got a good win against Virginia. They've got, and their other big one is Florida. They beat Florida at home earlier year. We know how well Florida has been playing. So they've got at least three, maybe four kind of marquee wins. I think it's enough to get them in the tournament. And you look at the remaining schedule. Their next two this week are on the road. Notre Dame, Virginia Tech, and they end the year with a two-game homestand. Georgia Tech, Clemson, Peyton, those are four winnable games. It, they can win all four of those in the regular season on a six-game win streak. Would put them at what twenty two and nine, and maybe slide all. It depends on what happens. Everything else they could slide up as high as maybe like a two or three seed in the conference. I think Wake Forest is solidly in the tournament. What they can't happen, they cannot lose to Notre Dame on Tuesday night on the road. Now I know road games are tricky, especially this year. They can't follow this up with a bad Notre Dame loss. You really don't want them to lose that Virginia Tech. It wouldn't be a backbreaker. Vitek's still 55th in Ken Palm. But then you get Georgia Tech and Clemson. Clemson's very winnable. Ken Palm favors them the last game of the regular season. I think there's real potential here for Steve Forbes, uh, Demon Deacons to end the season on a hot streak, Peyton, and really increase their seed line and everything else going into March. Yeah, I definitely think they're in the tournament. I just think it's really tough for me to say they're solidly in and they're a lock because they got two road games back-to-back against Notre Dame, and Notre Dame has upset somebody this season anyways. So if they go into Notre Dame and lose that game, that could be detrimental. Virginia Tech, they can lose that game as well. Ken Palm has them winning by one point. And then Georgia Tech's upset some teams. They just beat Carolina, what, three weeks ago, whatever it was. They're very capable of pulling up an upset-type victory. And Clemson, obviously, is still very talented. So, yeah, they can win all those games, but they also can lose a couple. And that's definitely not good for their resume. But all the games that they've lost, it's been outside of their own home building. Um, they've done a good job of holding home court. So, I think they'll win against Georgia Tech, and I think they'll beat Clemson. I do think Wake Forest is a tournament team. Yeah, I agree. Um, can't lose Tuesday night on the road at South Bend, though. Cannot, or else now you're back that's, in the bubble. And that, that, yeah, that's bad. You've got to win. Tuesday night's got to be just as important as last night's win against Duke was. Got to go take care of business against Notre Dame. Let's transition to probably the game of the day. Let's go. Is the CBS is the first game of their triple header. Tipped off at noon yesterday, and what a game it was. Houston survives in Waco in overtime, beating Baylor 82-76 in a game where Houston was up as many as 17 points. Baylor, 
the game flipped when Scott Drew went to the matchup one through one because then it turned Houston into a perimeter offense or oriented offense. And then Baylor got hot. Baylor got hot from three. They end up going 10 to 25 from three. Um, Ray J. Dennis, uh, 21 points. Jacoby Walter, who was red hot in the first half, 23 points, 17 from Bridges. They got back in the game and even had a chance in regulation to win the game. One of the wildest sequences that I can remember where Houston, who was it? It was, uh, was it? Oh, it was Damian Dunn. Makes the first free. He had two free throws or one and one. Made the first free throw. Puts them up two. Misses the second. Baylor comes down. Eves Missy gets fouled. Makes the bucket with like 4.4 seconds left to go, misses the free throw. And then uh, Jamal Sheed hits a what everybody thought was like a 30-foot game winner that when they went and replayed it, the ball was still in his hands when the buzzer expired. They go to overtime. Houston just kind of, their toughness, I kept saying this, Houston's toughness won them this game in a game they could have easily blown. But an incredible college basketball game to kick Saturday off yesterday. Peyton, your thoughts, because I thought both teams – especially in the second half, played some entertaining basketball. Absolutely. Uh, this game was definitely phenomenal. Just life in the Big 12. You know, Houston started off, they were up 41-25 going into the second half. And then you mentioned it, when Scott Drew adjusted, went to that 1-3-1, one, one, um, it gave Houston problems. They started falling in love a little bit too much with the three. Uh, wasn't it basically eliminated any driving opportunities for them. Um, so I thought Scott Drew did a hell of a job of throwing that adjustment out there because it really worked. And then Jacoby Walter got high. Ray J. Dennis was great. Jay Nunn had a good game. Um, it, that Those final moments, Use Missy had three plays. Oh, yeah. Potentially Killers. was detrimental. Killers. The first play, which was his, by the way, his only points of the game, that whole layup going to and one. That was his first. Those his only points of the game. He gets that. He has a chance to put them up one point with like five seconds ago. Whatever 4. it was, four. I think is what it was around that time. If he makes that free throw, Baylor wins the game. Baylor mm-hmm. wins. If he makes that free throw, Baylor wins the game because now Houston has to take it out of bounds. They have zero timeouts, which is very, very important to keep in mind of. No timeouts, so they can't set anything up. All you got to do is keep the offense in front of them, not foul, not doing anything I, stupid. I would assume Drew would have pressed too to he make them burn oh, some time. 100% he would have pressed. So, and they would have won the game if he had made that free throw. That was one play. Now we're going to overtime. They had a chance. Houston was up three points. I think it was like 75 to 72. I think that was a score. Use Missy wide open, gets the ball dumped to him. I think Ray J. Dennis yep. gave him the ball, or Jaden, whichever one of them. Wide open. All he had to do is go up there and lay it up with Duncan. And when he goes up, somehow he loses the ball. Slips right out of his hands. Air. That's play number two. That would have put him down only one. And then the final play, like one of the final plays of the game, again, they're down three. Need a bucket here. He, I forgot who it was. I think it was It, was, uh, it was Dennis yeah, off yeah, it was the Dennis. glass. Yeah. Off the glass. Maybe could have got fouled there. Off the glass, ball still in the cylinder. Use Missy goes up, dunks and in. It doesn't go off the rim. So, therefore, according to the rule, it's goaltending. Basket in defense. So, yeah. play gets through. That's three yeah. big plays. Unfortunate for the freshman who's been phenomenal this year for the Bears. Yeah. Which brings me up. I do want to ask, and I posted this on our group or on the ECB official Twitter yesterday. 
How do you feel about college basketball going the international rule? Like they play in the Olympics and play overseas where the ball is live on the rim for offense and defense. If the ball is on the rim, you can go up there and slam it home. If you're good enough, you can knock the ball off the rim. I've went back and forth like the last five, six years on this rule. And I think, I think I would appreciate the rule and like it because the athletes are so great. The dudes are getting, I mean, we see six foot nine guards now in basketball period here in America. I think it would make more strategy, like more strategic stuff. I think it would make the offense have to work even harder. And I think it would allow the defense a little chance. Now you, that doesn't mean like a shot goes up and you just jump in front of the rim. That's still goaltending. But if the ball's on the rim, it's live. So if a ball is like rim rolling around, you know, like for a buzzer beater, you don't have to sit there and wait and see if your fate relies on this orange ball going through the hoop. If you're a defender, go out there and knock the ball off. I think I would like for the NCAA to transition to the international rule on that. What do you say? That part, if the ball is on the rim and it's rolling around, I don't like that part. You should not be able – if the ball is on the rim and it's literally rolling around, you should not be able to, as a defender or even as an offensive player, be going out there and smack the ball out. That's like a little egregious to me. But if the ball is up in the air, though – like this was, the ball is up in the air. If it bounces off the rim and goes up in the air, I don't have a problem with like offensive player or defensive player going up there and making a play. But so the eliminate the, the rim, cylinder rule. Then. Yeah, eliminate so the cylinder you, rule. Yeah. That's so the I ball's think. live. Even, as long as it's off the rim, but, but off above the rim, the rim you can yes. go get it. It's fair yes. game. A fair game after yeah. that. Yeah, that, I, part, I, I, that part I'm, I'm fine. I'm cool with. Yeah, I think I would like that. Some variation of that because I think that – I get it. It's been the rule like that for decades, but you know, I, I wouldn't mind it being changed. Is all I'm saying. I, last yeah, thing on the on Baylor and Houston, Peyton Scott Drew's a genius. Going to that oh. matchup one three one and the way they played it, there was nobody in a set like spot really. Like if you played a natural one three one, everybody's got their spot. Like you would have Ray J or whoever your point man running back and forth, forcing the ball to a corner, trapping. You'd have your wing trapping, the other wing dropping that's on the weak side. You would have your bottom guy covering the baseline. But in the matchup, like I, if I remember right, it was Ray J. Dennis a lot of times played the middle man. So if they if Houston put somebody middle, he covered him. But also if they went to a pick to pick the outside guy of the, the top or the top man of the one three one, he would hedge out and just switch, and then that guy would replace, whether it was Bridges or Nunn or Walter, they would replace and take the middle. And I think it made Houston become a perimeter team that they didn't want to be for 10 minutes there until they figured out that, hey, we can still attack this off the bounce. It goes back to a point we've talked about for weeks now. I think that's how you got to beat Houston. You've got to make them a perimeter team, and they can make the shots. Like, they only went 6 of 21 from 3 yesterday. But they got shot makers and Cryer and Sheed and, you know, Jawan Roberts was the MVP of the game. He played well. But I think that Baylor sort of laid some kind of blueprint if you have the personnel force them into, like, a, a more a matchup zone so where they can't get set against a set zone and they can't get set against a man-to-man. Give them, like, a variation of a matchup zone, and I think you can slow them down enough. I agree, and I was going to mention that point, obviously. We talked about it before with Houston's offense. After going up, after scoring 41 points in the first half, they only scored 22 points or 28 points, excuse me, in the second half. The offense looked a little lost out there, like a little stagnant out there once Baylor – and that's hats off to Baylor's uh, defensive adjustments. I will give them that. I'm not going to discredit Houston that much. But, again, 
when they went to that zone, they looked like they was lost out there until they finally figured it out with those uh, the overtime period when Jamal Shedd started attacking the they man, stopped, one of the best passes yeah, they, in the country. They, they, they stopped. They just became passive instead of realizing, oh, shit, we're big and strong. We can still attack off the bounce. Yeah, and I think making them a perimeter team is definitely the blueprint to beating them this year because they, even though they have LJ Cryer, who's a hell of a shot maker, Jamal Shedd can stretch it out there and hit some shots as well. They got some guys who can make shots from that range. It's not their forte. Jamal Shedd mm-hmm. wants to attack the rim and be able to uh, make plays out of that situation. Um the reason why you want to go zone against them or do something like that is because also when they shoot threes, you keep them out of the paint and it eliminates basically any chances for second chance opportunities for them. Cause once they attack the rim, they've got a couple guys down there already. So they're going to go out there. The number one team in the country and getting offensive boards. So if you make them more of a perimeter team, it takes more guys out of the rim, but a chance to get your rebounding percentage up and stuff like that. And long shots, long rebounds equals transition, which you don't want to go against their half-court set defense, the way they blitz ball screens and stuff. The other thing I want to point out, too, Baylor did an incredible job against that blitz to keep their dribble alive. The last thing when you play a team like Houston who blitzes ball screens and runs double teams, do not pick the ball up because then you're in no man's land. Baylor kept the dribble alive. I thought Ray J. Dennis was phenomenal yesterday, but Houston, that's an incredibly gutsy win after blowing a 17-point lead. It shows how tough they are. You have to kill this team when you have the opportunity. Baylor didn't have that uh, that killer's instinct yesterday. Shout out to our guy in the comments here, uh, Michael Davis here. I was on his podcast earlier in the week, Talk of Pro Wrestling, over at Drop the Mic podcast with uh, Michael Davis there. Go check that out. We talked a little pro wrestling. Um, he says, nah, live balls on the rim should be a thing. Hey, we'll agree to disagree. We'll agree to disagree. Peyton, let's move on, though. Did you raise your hand if you had Kentucky boat racing Alabama yesterday? I didn't. I thought we would win. I thought Kentucky yeah. would win, and it's special environment, coming off of a loss, needing the win. I thought there would be a lot of points scored. So none I of those things ex- None of those things surprised me. But what surprised me is Kentucky had Alabama down 37 points. I'll repeat that. 37 points at one point in the second half. This game was over. Our guy Eric Haslam over at Haslam Metrics. Analytically final with 11 minutes to go. Kentucky was up 92-59. It was over. No way in hell anybody expected this. Did you? No. Not to. No, not at all, actually. I did not expect this at all. I thought Alabama, they started off the game pretty hot. They went up like 6-2 at one point. I think they sought the game off. Got the lead, did what they needed to do when you're going to the road. We've mentioned it um, a lot this last couple of weeks. And if you're going to the road in a big game, you got you to gotta start off hot. You got to punch them in the mouth. Throw the first shot you make. And I thought Alabama did a good job of doing that. Once Kentucky started making adjustments and started really forcing them off, off the perimeter and making them more of an attacking team, Kentucky's got so much size down low. It's just it's not a good way to beat them. You're gonna have to hit shots, and Bama didn't really do that in this game too much. Um, first couple minutes they did, but after Kentucky made some adjustments, they were they got a little bit too happy with the three point line and uh, got off with them. And Kentucky just blitzed them. I mean. What a display, offensive display. When Kentucky is on, when the offense is on, Alabama might be number one in Ken Palm and offensive efficiency, but when Kentucky is on, it's the best. It's the best offense in the country. 
Look, no offense, Alabama is, is incredible, right? And I, there's only one team in the country I feel like that could have done that to Alabama from a scoring aspect and just outrun them, and that's Kentucky. We've seen it yesterday. It, listen, stats be damned. Kentucky, we saw yesterday, I do believe, has the most potent offense in college basketball. Like, I think they are number one. Alabama's number two. And you talked about it with the, the amount, man. Peyton, we talked about this a little bit last Sunday on episode 177, some kind of early keys to this game. The number one thing would be who would get the most stops? Who would get the defensive kills? I think Kentucky probably ended up with four or five. Alabama maybe had one. And that was the difference, all that was needed, because the way the shot making was going and everything was falling for the Cats yesterday, they ended the first half 8 of 13. They put up 59 points on Alabama at halftime. Getting those defensive stops was all that was needed, and then they just boat raced them. We've talked about this for weeks with Kentucky's defense and the lack of defense, but here in the last couple of weeks, even the LSU game is getting better and getting better and getting better. When you score like this, Peyton, for a team that's this potent, you don't need to be a top 10 or a top 25 defense. You just need to get a couple extra stops, get a two or three defensive kills if possible throughout the game, and your offense is just going to boat race teams. That's all they need. Go back to the losses in the last couple weeks. Florida, Gonzaga, uh, just to name a few. If they'd have got an extra stop or two in those games, they win. Texas A&M. An extra stop or two, not even kills. And they win. And we're looking at Kentucky sitting here at 22 and five, potentially a one seed right now. That's how different the margin is. But I mean, this was the Justin Edwards game, right? Oh. 28 points, five rebounds, two assists, two steals. Did not miss a shot from the floor. He only missed one free throw. He was 10 of 10 from the floor, including four or four from three. The only the third player third Kentucky player ever to have a perfect game from the floor and the first ever to do it, making a three point shot. The other one was Kenny Skywalker who went 11 of 11 and I forget who the other one was, but they went 12 of 12. Both of them were quote unquote big men in a way. Justin Edwards, 28 points. Phenomenal. If we, if Kentucky gets that production, then they won't get 28 nightly, but he's been getting better. His ability playing both ways, getting the 50-50 balls, getting his nose in there for rebounds, and just being a shot maker, it takes Kentucky to a whole new level. Zivanovira Visic, 18 points. This was a perfect game for him to play because it wasn't as physical. And you see, when this is more of an athletic up-and-down game, he'll give you 18 points and five rebounds. Um, uh, Antonio Reeves, 24 points, Peyton. K- Kentucky, 13 of 24 from three for 54%. I mean, what else can you say about this other than it was a total ass whooping? Justin Edwards almost had the complete perfect game you want. He played 29 minutes, 28 points, 10 to 10 from the field, 4 4 from the three point line, 4 5 from the free throw. He missed one free throw, which interrupted his complete perfect game. He had five rebounds, two assists, zero fouls, and zero turnovers. Zero fouls and zero turnovers in 29 minutes while pitting the offensive display, only missing one free throw. This dude had almost the complete perfect game you'd want at hand. This is the guy coming in that we all expected. Like, if he plays at this type of level, he's a lottery pick for sure. He needs to continue doing somewhat of this, being aggressive offensively. I mean, he was on. He was hitting. He had a four-point play at one point. Um, I mean, this kid was phenomenal. Defensively, he was doing work. 
what a display and, out of him. And and how about um Cal like so Alabama and I told you at halftime it's weird Kentucky's up seventeen I didn't really feel that confident because we've seen Kentucky blow leads just go back to the LSU game on Wednesday night and then Alabama's offense Alabama got the game down to what was it thirteen twelve something like that Cal yeah. went to his killer lineup with. Rob Dillingham, Reed Shepard, Antonio Reeves, Justin Edwards at the four, and Zavonavira Visich. And all of a sudden, that lead went from like a 12 point lead to the 92, uh, what did I say, 92, six, or whatever it was. Basically, yeah. like a 30 point lead in a matter of five minutes. They outscored Alabama in five minutes, 24 to five, with that lineup. That's the most potent offensive lineup, maybe in college basketball, those five on the floor together. Edwards again, his his continued development and growth takes Kentucky potentially a new level. And how about our guy Michael DeRosa in the comments saying, Josh, is Kentucky the best team in the country now, or are they still not sniffing the tournament? Well, DeRosa, when they play like this, they're the best team in the country. Listen, you know, I, 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 I I say that kiddingly. Connecticut listen. produced still better. But listen, let me say this real quick. If they play like this and their defense continues to improve, because again, I do want to say last point on that. The 95 points, Alabama was always going to score. But if you go back and watch, we talked about it being analytically final at 11 minutes ago. You could tell like that last seven, eight minutes, Kentucky was just like, take the dunks and layups. We don't care. Take them. We don't care. We're just going to do our deal. Get get this game over with. If they were to continue playing defense for the full 40 minutes like they had been, Alabama may not have got 80. And then it's a completely different. If Kentucky's defense continues to get better like this and the way they score – Peyton, they're probably going to be a four or five seed. Would you want to be the one seed staring this team down the barrel in a sweet 16 game right now on a neutral floor? No, not at all. And to what well, I was going to mention to DeRosa, it's funny he says that. I was making a joke to Josh last night when us, me and him and uh, Cook and Johnny was playing four and I last night. I was like, Josh was so damn excited. He's like ordered his tickets for Phoenix. Like, it's fine <laughs> four bound. Like, they're, they're going. Yeah. It, Here's the thing about Kentucky. They got Mississippi State coming up. What, Tuesday? Is that Tuesday, on Tuesday on the road? Yeah. On the road. We'll talk about more about that here later. They, like I mentioned um, last week after they beat Auburn, they can't take that type of performance and lay an egg in the next game, which they ultimately did to LSU. They had like, what, a double digit point lead 15, at one point yeah. on the road, and they gave that one up. Probably a game they should have won and should have held on. Coming off of this great display, you can't go against Mississippi State and lay an egg. They, if they do, then I'm going to have serious concerns. If Kentucky's at their top, they're a national championship top good. I just don't think, as of now, I can trust them to win six straight in March. Well, I, I think more. I think it's everybody feels it's this roller coaster. When they're on, they're, they're going to make the Final Four. But if they have a dip, they're going to get bounced maybe in the first round. Like, we just have to – it's going to be one of the most fascinating stories three weeks from today when we see the brackets unveiled of seeing where their path lies and potential pitfalls. But also, we got to, we always talk about them, you know, if they get matched up with this team, it's a bad matchup because how physical. Don't forget the way they score in this talent. They are bad matchups for a lot of teams too, going back to the point of, would you want to be a one seed and see this team in a sweet 16? Even if you are better as a team and more consistent in a one-game scenario, win or go home, would you want to see Kentucky in your bracket opposite of you? And answer, I think, if you asked everybody seriously, would be hell 
No. Last thing real quick, because we got to move on. Latrell Wrightsell did not play. Obviously a big loss for Alabama. Alabama, I think you just burn the tape and move on. Like, you got ran over by a buzzsaw. They had good performances. I mean, Ryland Griffin, 21 points. They had 20 for Mark Sears. How about this SEC um, Player of the Year race? Mark Sears, Dalton Connect, Antonio Reeves, Peyton. Who would you give it to right now? Oh, my God. I mean, it's mm. – you can't go wrong with either one. I think all of them deserve it, but I think – uh, it's hard to not go with Mark Sears, especially if Alabama wins the conference, which they're in first place right now. I think them and Tennessee are actually tied for first place. If they win the conference, especially if they win it outright, I mean, it's going to be really hard to not go with Mark Sears. But I think Antonio Weaves, out of those guys, is the most lethal player in the country, especially when it's late down the stretch. It feels like he's getting 20 every night. I mean, all three of these guys, really, it feels like they're getting 20 every night. A I, quiet I think 20. A quiet yeah. 20 at that. Here's what I'll say. Don't connect had this wrapped up a month ago. Yeah. But as we've seen, it's a full body of work. You can't coast. And I'm not saying connect. He had 24 last night, blowing out Texas A&M. But you have to continue to make waves throughout the whole year because we've seen Sears and Antonio come up. I think this is a lot closer to what people think. DeRosa blaming me for Butler. I mean, this comment, he says, uh, what happens when they get a six and Butler somehow come out of the first four and beat Kentucky? Well, I guess it could happen. And he also says... Also, just want to say Josh guaranteed a Butler tourney bid. And now, yeah, I still think Butler gets in. No fears, my friend. I think that they'll rally enough, win a game in the Big East tournament, and they'll get in. I think your Bulldogs will get in. Trust me. Um, Peyton, let's move on to the Big East. So let's start rapid firing some of these results. Creighton today, coming off their massive victory in midweek against Connecticut, the number one team of the country, blew them out in Omaha. 85-66, they go to the garden. Patino brings out the pimp white suit, hearkening back to his Louisville glory days. And the Johnnies protect Madison Square Garden for their first-ranked victory of the season, beating Creighton 80-66. to Peyton, your initial thoughts, and how do you view Creighton now? Because I think they had the big win against Connecticut. They have a road loss against St. John's, desperate for a big-time ranked victory. I think as far as when I fill out my ballot later tonight for the ECB and the House of College Hoop Polls, I think Creighton's going to stay about the same, about 15, 14, 15, 16. What say you? Yeah, I just think they had an off night. I mean, I mentioned it before. I mentioned it a lot, actually, that if we just compare in, like, top fives, if we just compare, like, the starting lineups in the country, Creighton has, like, a top five starting lineup in the country, and then after that, their bench is just – they got two bench points in this game. Um that hurt. They needed more out of their bench. Uh, Miller played 11 minutes, had zero points. Basically, did not do a damn thing at all. He had one rebound and one assist in 11 minutes. If you're on the starting line, you cannot let that shit happen. Mr. Invincible. Uh, or invisible, I mean. See. Yeah. Trey Alexander had a hell of a game. 31 points, 12 of 23 from the field, 4 of 8 from the three-point line, four rebounds, three assists, played 39 minutes. He was amazing. Uh, Jenkins for St. John's had 27. Silvano had 12. Uh, Dingle had 18. Anytime Patina breaks out the white suit, you can always chalk that up as an L for your opponent because you ain't winning. I, I'm so happy he brought that shit out. Definitely uh, goes back to his Louisville days when he was doing that shit constantly. Um, almost every other like big game he was doing that, it seems. So it was cool to see. Hats off to St. John's. They needed a win like this, and hopefully this gives them some momentum heading into a big, big East tournament play. Shout out to our friend and former, uh, she was on the show with DeRosso, yeah. what, a month ago, Sarah from the network. 
She obviously was at the St. John's game today in the garden, took a picture of Patino in the suit when he first came out, and it went viral. Like uh, Bleacher Report and Barstool and all these, uh, Field 68 retweeted it. So congratulations to her on the, the photo blowing up. But Dennis Jenkins, 28 point, or sorry, 27 points was phenomenal. Like Creighton couldn't guard him today. And I, two things I want to point out. St. John's won a game in a way that Mike Woodson dreams of. They only hit two of eight from three. They didn't even need the three-point line. Mike yeah. Woodson's dreaming of that. And they limited their turnovers. And, again, it, my fear with Creighton, Peyton, you talked about the bench play. Two points from the entire bench production today was it. And they go 6 of 26 from three. If Creighton does that in the tournament and they get nothing from the bench and they don't shoot well from three, they're another one of these teams that could be upset in the first round. They could either make the Final Four with as talented as they are, or they could be upset in the first round. And today is a reason why we see that they're vulnerable to an upset. Yep, I agree. Let's move on. Stay with the Big East real quick. I mentioned we'll rapid fire these. Connecticut coming off of the loss we talked about to Creighton. They bounced back yesterday. Uh, they had game day in attendance. They beat up Villanova. It was their biggest win against Villanova in like 25 years or something. They beat Villanova 78-54 at home. Cam Spencer was tremendous. He had a, what was it, triple – he's, he's the one that had triple double? No, he did not. Um, it was uh, – Newton had a triple double. Newton, 10 points, 16 rebounds, 10 assists. Cam Spencer had 25 points, Peyton. Connecticut shoots 10 of 32 from three, but Tristan Newton as a point guard had 16 rebounds. What do you want to talk about real quick? Connecticut just being that damn good or Villanova being that disappointing? Uh, I mean, we're going to have more time to talk about how good just UConn is. I mean, hell, we did that last week on the show. We talked about how good and dominant they are. Villanova has been so damn disappointing. It's going to be a sight to see like what they do with that coaching spot because Kyle and Neptune, it's not like for the lack of talent. They've had talent. Hell, they had Kane Wentmore last year, who's a top 15 type of a player. Um, they've had guys come in and, who's very, very talented. Like, there's no reason they should be getting their doors blown off of them like they've done like pretty much all season. They've had a couple of good wins this year, but 100%. I mean, you take the program that Jay Wright did with this. It's a whole nother, like you flip it and completely do a 180 from Jay Wright to Colin Neptune. So definitely been very disappointing. Three, three of 24 from three is not going to get it done, oh, Peyton. They shot 42 no. or sorry, 46% from the floor. Just not a How reliant are they on Eric Dixon? Because he went oh. seven of 19 from the floor last night. He had eight rebounds. I know he's probably their best player. But I feel like Villanova, when they were winning earlier in the year, they won that early season tournament, was the battle for Atlantis, I think. Um, they were more balanced. Like, you got better production at, like, Tyler Burton and Hakeem Hart and Justin Moore. Like, Dixon, it seems like when he has big games, Villanova doesn't play that great as a whole because they're so reliant on him. What do you think? Are they over-reliant on Eric Dixon, or is it a case where he's just that good and they he needs to be that, you know, get that many shots and do all this production stuff? 
think it's a mixture of both. On one hand, like he's so damn talented that he can go get you buckets like anytime really he wants to, like anytime he has space. And you definitely want to feed him the ball a lot and keep him going and keep his confidence up. But also, you don't have to start like figuring some stuff out. And like he needs obviously help. He needs other guys to step up. And if they if they can figure that out before Big East tournament starts, maybe they can figure out to make a run. Um, I don't trust it, obviously. I definitely think it's a mixture of both. Well, let's move on to your Jayhawks, Peyton. Um, since the loss last Monday, the blowout Tech Stack, they've bounced back with two wins back-to-back Saturdays. Oklahoma, we talked about last Saturday, and then yesterday they pounded Texas. Did not have Kevin McCuller again, but it did not matter. Look at all – I mean, they put, what, six – five guys. All five starters were in double figures. DeWan Harris – 14 Dickinson 20 Nicholas Timberlake with 13 where the hell's he been at Johnny Furphy 16 and KJ Adams 16 they got seven bench production points they only played eight guys because the rotation is in depth is just not there we've talked about this ad nauseum with Kansas all year long but Peyton you only went three of eight from three you pulled it like Kansas and St. John's again living Mike Woodson's dream of not having <laughs> to shoot a bunch of threes and still winning yeah Absolute ass whooping. Texas is another team when we do our end of year kind of review. Like Villanova is going to fall in that category of super disappointing. But your Jayhawks, big time win, much needed. That it, it was nice to see guys like Timberlake finally start to show out a little bit. Yeah, I mean it took a long time for him to finally like gain some confidence. He played. Decently well. He had a couple threes against Baylor um, on one of our, in like a couple weeks ago. He had a pretty decent game there. Um, he's starting to get a little bit of momentum, get a little bit of confidence back. Um, obviously, he was great at Towson last year, hit over like 103s in a single season last year for Towson. Came in as a shooter, has been struggling consistently. Confidence has not been there. It's been an all time low for him. He had a hell of a dunk that made sports to the top 10 plays when he shit it all over. I think it was Dylan DeSue. I forgot who it was. I think it was him. Um, hell of a Alley oop from one to Nick Timberlake. Oh, yeah, there. it was DeSue in transition, yeah. caught him just on um, the body. From the way to go, we just put an ass whooping on him. We jumped him early and just never looked back. They got it, started the second half. They started the game off, or started the second half off pretty well. Got it under, I think, 10. And after that, we put it, uh, another ass whooping on him, stretched it out and never looked back. When Kev is out, He's been injured. He's dealing with his knee issue. He came back for like a two game, a couple games, came back against Oklahoma, played decent. When he's dealing with these injuries, he's probably he's doubtful for the Tuesday game against BYU. So we'll see if he even plays in that one or not. Doesn't matter because if he doesn't play, it's type of these type of games we desperately need for the confidence to show up for the bench because that's something we've lacked all season long is consistent bench play. So when Kev's out, we're asking other people coming off the bench for them to do more and it's starting to get, get their confidence up. And that's going to be extremely important for this final stretch. Listen, I, I asked you yesterday and I'll ask you again real quick. You got four games remaining in regular season. You're two games back from Houston in the race for the big 12 regular season title. There is still a potential you would need Houston to lose at least one more and you end the year with Houston. So you have a chance in that case to at least share the conference. Do you bring him back early with a chance of trying to get that big Big 12 title or at least a share of it, try to get the one seed 
Or do you let him slowly come back and make sure he's ready for March? Because this is big decisions. Because look at Kansas's last four are not it's easy. They're tough. not easy. You got BYU, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, previewing it on Tuesday at home. You're on the road next Saturday at Baylor. We know how difficult that's going to be. You're back home against Kansas State on the following Tuesday. And then the following Saturday, the final game of the regular season at Houston in the return game. You know that one's going to be difficult. But – there's a chance here if you could win those four games there. And like I said, Houston drops at least one more, not, not the Kansas game. You can at least share the conference. So how are you feeling about this? Well, two games out of the first place, obviously Houston has sole possession of um, the conference at 11 and three Iowa state is second and 10 and four. They have a game over us. We need them to lose at least one game and we need, Houston obviously lose one game and Kansas has to win out in order for us to win a Houston share schedules favorable too. Houston's schedule is very favorable. That's why I really needed them to lose to Baylor last night and they didn't. So I was very disappointed on that. It's going to be very, very difficult for us to win a share. Um, it would be our 17th title under Bill self um, in the big 12 or since he came to Kansas. It's very unlikely it's going to happen. It's not impossible because I trust in Bill Self and I trust in Kansas that we'll be able to win a couple of these games. I think it's more important for us to make a Final Four run than it is for us to make any type of run to win the Big 12 regular season. It's very unlikely. Rest Kev, get him fully healthy because we are desperately going to need him in the Big 12 tournament and we're 100% going to need him in March Madness when that starts up. So rest him now. Give this up to Houston or Iowa State and figure it out yeah and how weird is it going to be kansas may be a three or four seed depending on how these final four games go in the big 12 tournament we don't see that very often peyton real quick uh, arizona and U north carolina get wins arizona obviously came off the loss getting swept earlier in the week by washington state they bounce back beat up on washington and then north carolina played an absolute ugly game against virginia their first win there in like 11 years on the road in charlottesville against virginia 54 44 virginia in their last three games has combined for 134 points kentucky put 117 up yesterday i know virginia the acc race is tight right i mean it is close carolina's 13 and 3 duke's 12 and 4 Virginia is 11 and 6. Wake Forest is 10 and 6. But does anybody, and I, Tony Bennett's a great coach, but does anybody in the country play more unattractive basketball than Virginia does? That's not even a question. Because at least when we talk about Houston and their style, they have offensive players who like LJ Cryo check and go get you 25 if he wants, if they want to on any given night. They've got some exciting players on their roster. Not that Virginia doesn't, because I'm obviously a huge fan of Reese Beekman, but he's not the level like a LJ Cryo is like offensively. So I, it's the most ugliest basketball you're going to watch all season long. Um, it's going to be interesting to see um, them in the tournament and see how well they do. Because obviously last year they came off the first round upset against Furman, game winner. Um, I think it was the first game of the uh, the first game of the tournament last year. Ended up losing the game winner to Furman. That's going to be interesting to see. It's definitely ugly. It's not exciting to watch. No, it's not exciting at all. Let me grab a drink real quick. 
Yeah, take a drink, Ski. <laughs> Shout out Sonic. Um, <laughs> I had to wait in line for 40 minutes for one sandwich and a drink. I almost left, but I was out of gas. That's another story for another I day. Rather, I rather wait 40 minutes to do that than to watch 40 minutes of Virginia it, play basketball. Oh, my God. It's brutal. But it's you know what? Awful. They're in the thick of it for an ACC crown, though. So you got to get if, Tony if, Bennett. If, if it ends up with W's, who gives a shit? Um, let's move on to start looking ahead to this week, the early slate of games this week, Peyton. We talked about it on Tuesday night. Can Kentucky follow up another massive quad one victory on the road for another opportunity to quad one victory against Mississippi State? If you look at the conference standings, Kentucky probably not going to get a share of the conference. There's still a chance, but not likely. They're currently fifth in the SEC race right now, tied with Florida, both at nine and five ahead of them is Tennessee and Alabama is 11 and three Auburn and South Carolina, 10 and four, and then Kentucky, Florida, at nine and five. What a conference race. But then you have Mississippi state right behind those at eight and six, a win would tie them level with Kentucky at nine and six, a win for Kentucky and some right results could bump them up to maybe third in the conference. So a lot at stake here, especially with the seating, because we've talked about it before. Getting the bye to play on Friday as opposed to play the extra game on Thursday is massive in all these conference races. The fewer games you have to play in conference tournament time, the better it is on your squad on a condensed schedule with games back-to-back-to-back and then March Madness looming the following week. So can Kentucky follow up this incredible performance going on the road to Starkville and a very tough place to play against a team who's coming off of a win against Ole Miss, their rival, who is – actually won five in a row now playing well Peyton this is going to be a tall task for the Cats we know how physical Mississippi State 11th ranked defense of college basketball um, back in January 17th these teams played Kentucky hung 90 up on them in Rupp Arena and beat them 90 to 77 it's the opposite of what Kentucky has been all year Mississippi State elite defense 74th in offense they only shoot 32 percent from three it's 254th in nation. They're a terrible free throw shooting team, 67%. But they've got a difference maker inside named Tolu Smith who will give Kentucky problems he did in the first matchup. Let me hear your thoughts. Can the Cats string the wins together and start to get on a big-time roll heading into March? I think Kentucky is going to win this game. I think the offense is going to make enough plays late to really seal the deal for them. Defensively, they're gonna have to be good. I mean, it's gonna be a defensive battle. I mean, I definitely Kentucky's not gonna be scoring over 100 points over against Mississippi State. I Mississippi State, they probably won't even score 80 points at Mississippi State in this game. It's probably gonna be like a mid 70s type of game for Kentucky, which I think it's fine for them because, like I said, they got enough production on the offensively to be able to win this game on the road. It's gonna be tough. I think it's extremely important. I expect. Um, Onesu to play a lot more in this game than we did yeah. last game because it's going to be a type of game that he can play in. I don't expect a lot of minutes for Aaron Bradshaw. I don't expect a lot of minutes for Big Z. Physically, they're just not up to task. It's going to be uh, if they play a lot of minutes, it's going to be extremely troubles for them. I think it's really important for someone like Onesu to not get in foul trouble because if he gets in foul trouble, Cal's going to have a big decision to make. Either he's going to have to go small ball or he's going to have to trust Ernest or Big Z and Bradshaw to hopefully maybe they can 
deal with the physicality at least somewhat, which is has not been trustworthy this season. So unless you have to stay out of foul trouble, Kentucky's guards will be the difference maker. Justin Edwards, it'd be interesting to see how well he plays in this game um, after coming off of a career high a career high performance last last night against um, Bama. I think Kentucky's offense wins this game for him. Here's who, two players I key on if Kentucky's the win, I think could have good games because of the style of play. DJ Wagner, I think this fits his mold. A physical game, he's a physical kid. I think he could have a big-time game, and I think Adutiero, both offensively and defensively for both, could have big games. I'm with you on the interior play. I think you've got to ride in the end just because of the, the strength and the more physical of the three uh, seven-footers for the Cats. You got to find ways to neutralize Tola Smith, but you can't fall asleep and allow Josh Hubbard to get fired. Now, Mississippi State, we talked about only 32% from three, but they defend the three at a high level, the fourth in the country. They only, teams shoot only 28%. Kentucky's the number one three point shooting team in college basketball, 41%. So something's got to give there. Here's something I would consider if I was Coach Cal heading into Tuesday night I would press Mississippi State. Yeah. I would get after them and I would press and I would try to trap and speed them up because turnover wise, they rank 270th in turnover percentage on the offensive end. They're turning the ball over 18.5% of their offensive possessions. That That's not good. I would find ways to speed them up and get this to an up-tempo game that they don't want to play. Also, Tolo Smith, you say don't foul him. I actually, it's not like I would intentionally foul him, but he's only shooting 59% from the foul line. He's 68 of 115 on the year. Not a great free throw shooter. It wouldn't be the worst. I would rather foul him as opposed to letting him get a dunk. Make him earn it from the free throw line all night long. Kind of like a hack-a-shack rules it modified in a way. And make him earn it from the foul line, which he's obviously not comfortable with. And the other thing, I would throw in some zone. I, I would make them. They're not a good three-point shooting team. Now, at home percentages rise. We know this across the country. You know, Shaquille Moore is their best three-point shooter at 39.7%. Deshaun Davis is capable of making one. Cam Matthews, DJ Jeffries, all these guys. But I would throw a zone. I would just mix it up. If you can't be as physical as another team, find ways to turn them over and mix them up. I think Kentucky finally will get on a little roll. I think they'll go down to start Vegas. Mississippi State's going to hit shots that they don't normally make. They're going to make some threes. They're going to make this ugly. But I think as long as Kentucky doesn't lose their head like they did against LSU – I could see them gapping them at some point, that middle eight part of the second half and getting like a 12, 13, 14 point lead and just holding on. I've got Kentucky winning. I think this is a game like a guy like a dude, the arrow can have like some sort of a big game. I agree. And, and like a big game I I, for him, I think he can get you by like 16 and eight around that margin. Like I think and he like gets four like, blocks. Four blocks. Uh, yeah, a couple blocks. I think he's due for like a big game in this one just because like physically he can he can oppose as well a little bit. Like he can deal with the physicality in this game and also he can play above the rim. Um he can make some big plays, really get because I know BBN's gonna show out, even though it's at Mississippi State, they're gonna show up hundred percent. You ain't got a question about that. Get those crowd get the crowd involved. Um I think he's due for like a bigger game, like a 16-8 with like three three blocks or a couple, like maybe a couple steals. Yeah, like, like he, he wasn't against Auburn. Auburn. Exactly. Yeah. I think he's due for like a good game in this one. I agree. Let's move on to also on Tuesday night. We've got a Big 12 clash. We just kind of talked about BYU on the road at Fog Allen against Kansas, Peyton. Kansas, I, again, I don't think we'll have Kevin McCuller back. I, I think that that – He's doubtful. Yeah, I would say don't play him. 
Just be on air on the side of caution. But BYU is going to give Kansas problems because how well their offense fires. Like their average three-point shooting team percentage-wise at 35% right on the button, but they're seventh in any inside the three-point line, 58% from twos. They're a really good offensive team, ninth in the country. They're a so-so defense, 68. I think Kansas, if they want to win, run them off the three-point line, get physical, pound it inside to Hunter Dickinson, and then hope Timberlake continues to get better, Furphy continues to make shots, and I think Kansas will handle BYU at Fog Allen. But if they're not careful, BYU can get red hot from three in a hurry as well as anybody in the country. So I think if you're Kansas, run them off three-point line, make them two-point shooters, make them drivers into the Kansas defense, and then Kansas just pound them inside because they don't have anything for Hunter Dickinson. Yeah, I think that's going to be the the key for Kansas. Um, just pound them inside. You know, hit a couple. We're going to hit a couple threes in this game. Fofi's probably going to have a big game in this one just because of how open of a play this, uh, how open this game's going to be. Um, defensively, BYU is not going to have really anybody really to stop him, especially to stop Hunter Dickinson, and especially. With their lack of size down low, they're going to send double teams at Hunter. But Hunter's also pretty good at fucking kicking out to his open shooters. And that's going to leave a guy like Johnny Fofi open for threes, wide open, in space. He's going to knock him down. I trust in that. So Kansas, obviously, at home. You obviously know who I'm picking. Kansas holds home court. We're going to win this game. BYU is going to give us some issues. They're going to hit some shots like most teams do when they hit uh, – when um, they come into Fog Allen, they're going to hit some shots. Uh, BYU is a good team, but – Playing in the fog, it's going to be tough for them. Um, Kansas wins this game. Yeah, I'm with you. I, and honestly, I could see this where Kansas slows this thing down a lot and plays it in like the upper 60s, low 70s. Yeah. Like, I don't know. If it's a high-scoring affair, it might favor BYU because of that offense. I think Kansas probably wants to play this game around like maybe the first one to 75 wins, 74, 75. So we'll see. Yeah. But I've got Kansas protecting home court. But – It'll be interesting. I think BYU's offense could give them some issues, but we'll see. Um, and the last one I want to touch on is Wednesday night. Talk about a gigantic SEC race game right here. You've got number 14, Auburn, on the road at number five, Tennessee, Peyton. What a game this should be. Now, Tennessee, we know how good they are at home, right? There's not. They've lost one game at home this year, and that was the South Carolina. They've won four in a row since losing on the road at Texas A&M. They've blown out pretty much everybody. I mean, they beat Arkansas 92-63. They beat Vandy 88-53. They beat Missouri Lane by five, but then they blew out Texas A&M last night 86-51. This is a Tennessee team full of confidence, elite defense, guard play, interior play. This is a good game. And you look at Tennessee's remaining schedule, their last four, Auburn home, at Alabama, at South Carolina, home against Kentucky. That is a brutal, brutal final four games that's going to determine a lot for their conference championship hopes in the regular season and NCAA tournament seeding if they could come out unscathed or at least like a three-and-one record. I want to hear your thoughts, predictions on Wednesday night's game between Auburn and Tennessee. These two teams are, like, evenly matched. Like, they're very, very similar. Like, if you look at that Ken Palm, you look at just the stats, Tennessee's defense is ranked second, Auburn's is ranked fifth. Tennessee's offense is ranked 21st, Auburn's is ranked 15th. Very similar in that. Both of those teams shoot about 34% from three. Very evenly matched in that. A lot of stuff that Tennessee does great defensively, Auburn does, like, the same things great defensively. So they're very, very evenly matched. They're two difference makers, and it's why – 
I'll go three because obviously home court advantage is going to play a huge factor in this. The two big on court uh, advantages that Tennessee has over Auburn in this game, and why I think Tennessee holds home court, they got better guards, better guard play, and Dalton connects the best player on the floor. More Tennessee trustworthy guards, more yes. trustworthy. Tennessee's like, gonna win those games. Win this uh, game because Auburn's got good guards, but they're not trustworthy. Not I think all. Tennessee's gonna have a problem with Janai Broom. Like I expect digs and double teams. Um, either way you want to do it, just straight down or coming from a weak side double to keep him off of his left hand. But I, I expect Janai Broom to give Tennessee a lot of problems. But credit to Jonas Adu, he's been phenomenal this year. His growth from sophomore to junior year. He's been a real factor for Tennessee, why they are so good and why they are 21-6 and six in the SEC well, co-leaders right now with Alabama. Um, I, I'm going Tennessee to win because, again, it is at home and you trust Tennessee's guard play more than Auburn's. But Auburn has that kind of weird firepower where they can run and they want to get in transition and they're comfortable grinding out and playing half-court defense. And they go 11 deep. Brucey will play 11 guys and rotate them. He's not worried about foul trouble because he's got the dudes that could give Tennessee some issues. If Tennessee does not hit shots, let's say Josiah Jordan James doesn't make shots or Viscovi or Meshack or Zakai Ziegler can't get off, Tennessee could be in some trouble at home. But you got to favor Tennessee at home. Peyton, I've just got this weird premonition, the way these teams want to play and as physical as they're going to play each other. Wasn't it last year these two teams or two years ago they played a game that was like 41-39 or something? It was real ugly, and Auburn won on the road at Tennessee. Something I'm not saying it's, like that. I'm yeah. not saying it's going to be that ugly, but I could see the final score Tennessee winning something like 55-52. Like I don't think I think points are going to be at a premium in this game. It's going to be a lot of defense, and who could make the most shots at the end of the day? And as you mentioned, Dalt connects on Tennessee, so you got to favor the balls at home. But I'm going like 55-51. I don't think it, either of these teams are going to make crack 60, maybe. Sorry, that's something coming in my room. But Yeah, I do think this game is going to be low scoring. I think like the first one to like 65 wins this game. And I like I mentioned earlier, Dalton connect and just Tennessee has better trustworthy guards of Viscovi. is going to be able to hit some shots. Like Kai Ziggler's just a dog. He's going to get after uh, K, uh, KJ, KJ, I can't say his name. Katie Johnson. Uh, thank you. I can't. I kept wanting to say KJ. Yeah. I wanted to combine like the first name and last name. Uh, Katie Johnson. He's going to get after him. KJ Johnson. Yeah, KJ Thompson. Yeah, whoever he is, whoever's going to be guard, whoever is the guy who's going to be guard, he's going to get after him. And those are the difference makers, man. I will say there is precedence. You go back to South Carolina. I mean, Auburn can play defense like South Carolina when they want to. In South Carolina, limited possessions, they went in then Tennessee and controlled the pace of the game, made timely shots, and walked out of Knoxville with a 63-59 victory. Like, I, if Auburn wins, I think it could be a game plan like that. But Auburn wants to get out transition more than South Carolina does, so maybe they leak out a little too early and it doesn't pay off. But I think it'll be close. I think it's going to be a fun game to watch Wednesday night, but it also might be an ugly game to watch too, if that makes sense, because I think this is just going to be like football. I think this is going to be like an Auburn-Tennessee football game on the hardwood, if I'm being honest. Also, keep in mind, go back to last year, no, the whole smash joke and hey, oh yeah, that's bullied. right. This smash! Game, this game's gonna be very, very physical. 
And with this game being at Tennessee, they're going to get majority of the calls. So that's going to play a huge factor of this. So, Bruce Pearl, you got to keep your composure. Your team has to keep their composure because if not, it's going to play in Tennessee's favor, and it's going to get you real ugly real quick. So keep that in mind. I, Dude, I that's a great point. I forgot about that. I am excited, though, to see, like – Chad Baker Mazzara, he his improvement as well this year has been huge for this team. Denver Jones make it threes. Trey Donaldson's a physical guard. I'm excited to see these Auburn guards match up. Like that matchup of Aiden Holloway, does he get rattled by the pressures that Kai Ziegler is going to put on him? Like that's going to be real interesting because if he can handle that initial pressure from Zakai Ziegler, he could have a big time game in this. And also Dylan Cardwell inside. I talked about Janai Broom. Dylan Cardwell has been phenomenal for yeah. Auburn this year. A lot of exciting stuff. I think this game's going to be really entertaining as hell to watch. Two elite top five defenses in college basketball and top 20 offenses. This is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Could be yeah. ugly, but it could be a lot of fun if that makes a lot of sense. Peyton, let's start re- winding things down here. We did it last week on the show. It was a big hit. We got some good comments on it. So let's do it again this week. Team's worst nightmares in the NCAA tournament up on the road to the final four. Meaning for those who didn't listen last week, or maybe forgot, we're going to give you a team. The first team, for example, I've got on the list is Duke. Who would Dukes, when they look, whether it's first round, a second round, sweet 16 matchup, or even a lead eight matchup, the style of play in which this opposing team plays is the antithesis of what Duke wants to go against. Who do you think's Duke's worst nightmare potentially in the NCAA tournament? Um, I'm gonna say because I thought about I thought about saying Tennessee because uh, the physicality. Obviously, it worked last year when Tennessee beat them in the second round. The physicality was just too much for Duke to overcome. I'm not gonna say that because I feel like that's a, like a really easy pick, kind of an off the wall type of pick. Defensively, they're not as good as like Duke could be, but I think a team like Illinois with Tan Shane oh, Jr. You tuck it right from me. Coleman tuck Hawkins. It. I think ten I think Illinois has the pieces that can give Duke troubles in March. I swear to you I had keyed in and I think I used Illinois for an example last week for like Alabama or somebody, but Maybe I'm with Alabama. you because look at Duke's losses. You go back to Duke. Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia Tech, Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Wake Forest. What's all six of those losses have? They have I would either really good guards or in some cases elite guards like North Carolina or Arizona, right? Or Wake yeah. Forest, Hunter South. Really good guard play and length athleticism, I think, will bother Duke. And Illinois has got a backcourt of guards that could give Duke problems. Terrence Shan- TJ Shannon, Terrence Shannon Jr. Marcus Damask has been phenomenal. Quincy Gurrier and Ty Rogers, when they play good, could give problems to Duke guards. I think Illinois is a great matchup there. If you're Illinois and if you're Duke, that would be what, maybe like a second weekend game or if everything went wrong, maybe like a second round game. That's a tough matchup in my opinion for Duke because again, good guard play, athletic, I think that could give Duke some issues there. Speed them up, not stay in front of them. I, I like that shot of Illinois. It's funny we had the same one there. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think Duke's worst nightmare potentially would be Illinois somewhere around that Sweet 16 range. Um, yeah, that's a good one. How, let's go back to Tennessee. Tennessee, what we know, right? Now, they've lost a couple games, ironically, 
the teams that played just like them, South Carolina, Mississippi State, physicality, right? Texas A&M blew them out a couple weeks ago in A&M because physicality. But then they've also lost to Purdue, Kansas, North Carolina, who's kind of got a great balance of everything. So it's hard to pinpoint which one. You wouldn't think like a team, like you wouldn't say like, oh, another physical team would out-physical Tennessee. Yeah. Who would be like Tennessee's worst out without saying the obvious of Purdue and Houston and Connecticut, right? Because maybe those are the only worst nightmares they have. Maybe. But who would you say would be like the worst nightmare type of team for Tennessee to see somewhere in that NCAA tournament before the Final Four? I have three that's on my mind. I think one of them I used last week, but I don't remember who I used them for. Um, I have to go back and show a member, but I think Baylor can give them some issues with just mm-hmm. how good their guard play is, and they got Jonathan Chalmers-Watcher, who is, has no problems at all going at somebody physicality-wise. Um, and obviously, Jacoby Watson and Ray J. Dennis and all those guys down there, we've seen how they fared up against uh, Houston last night. I think they can fare up very well with um, Tennessee. So that's one team. Another team I want to go with, obviously, they're going to struggle in the front court, but how well they shoot the three and how they can open up. I think BYU could be very, very intriguing. See how well they play against Tennessee. Although I do think Tennessee would win that game just because of their front court. I think BYU can give them an interesting matchup. And the last team I want to talk about and just because just how good and talented they are and underrated they are, Wake Forest would be very, very interesting to watch. Hunter Salas is one of the best players, one of the best players in the country. Um, very, very much in, very much and so in the running for ACC Player of the Year. Um, they've got other dogs on the team. Steve Forbes is a, well, is a great coach. He's going to coach them up. He's going to make some adjustments on the fly. I think Wake Forest would be intriguing. It's really hard. You're going to need a mixture of everything. Offensively, you're going to have to be on par. You're going to have to take care of the ball. You're going to have to be able to hit some shots. You're going to have to have some guys down low to physically impose their will on Tennessee's guards and their front court players. It's going to take an all-around effort to beat uh, Tennessee. But those are three teams I have in mind that could do it, I think. I, I really like the Wake Forest shot, like the guard play and the style. They're not afraid to get up and down, too, uh, when it calls for Peyton. I've actually got two that just kind of popped in mind. And and I can even throw a third one out there. The, the first one, maybe it's a layup to think of, but even with the lack of bench depth, I think when Creighton's on their game, Look, they're top 25 in offense and defense. We know how well they score the ball. If they can play comparable defense, they got Colt Brenner who blocks shots, who could be a problem maker for um, Jonas Adu down low. Then now the physicality would give them problems. But is Connecticut less physical than Tennessee? I mean, Connecticut's pretty damn physical. And they handled them at home. So it would come down to shot making. They could cause Tennessee. Imagine this game being in like a Sweet 16 Elite Eight. Creighton comes out, opens the game on a 22-8 run to start the game. Tennessee would be in some problems trying to play, you know, catch up against Creighton who can score the basketball at will. I think that could be an interesting matchup that could give Tennessee a lot of fits in this game or in that potential scenario. How about another one from the Big 12 that may be off the wall? I like TCU against Tennessee. I think their physicality. The guard play, Jameer Nelson Jr., Emmanuel Miller, Avery Anderson, Jacoby Coles, Micah Peavy, Travion Tennyson, the way he stepped up this year shooting 
44% basically from three. I think their offense would give Tennessee some dynamic problems. Jamie Dixon game plans really well. And I think going through the Big 12 grind, they're not afraid to play physical. I think TCU in like a second-round matchup would give Tennessee a shit ton of problems potentially. I, I think TCU would be my answer. I, Creighton maybe because I would worry about the lack of depth. But TCU, I think, could stand up toe-to-toe with Tennessee. I had TCU on my radar, and I was really looking at them because obviously I've been a big component of them coming into the season and during the season. I think Emmanuel Miller is a Big 12 first-team All-American. I think he's done a great job this year. Jamie Dickens is a good, a great coach. He's going to make the adjustments. He's going to game plan like no other, and he's going to figure out some ways to get his guards um, in good spots. And obviously, I mentioned they got you, like you mentioned, they got good guards as well with Tennyson and uh, Jimmy Nelson Jr. and Micah Peavy. The only thing I was about and the reason I didn't pick them is because Creighton lacks depth in general. TCU lacks front court depth. And if they mm. get in foul trouble, which being a physical game, it's going to happen. Tennessee would pick them apart um, in both sides of the ball. So that's the only trouble I give TCU is a lack of front court depth. But I thought about them as well. And then the last one, Marquette. And you look at Marquette, obviously, an elite offense. They're actually a top 25-rated defense as well, but you don't even think about them that much on that. They've got arguably the best point guard in college basketball, Tyler Collard. But go back to last year when they were a two-seed, Big East regular season and Big, Big East tournament champs. They got knocked out second round by Michigan State, who mucked the game up, got physical with them, hit the backboards. I think that's still the same game plan to beat Marquette. Make them turn the ball over. Make them feel your presence. And hopefully they miss shots. And Peyton, we just talked about him. I think Auburn's a bad matchup potentially for Marquette. Now Marquette clears them in a consistent guard play, but Auburn with that depth going 11 deep, getting after it on the glass, physicality defense, and not afraid to run and play the push the tempo. I think Auburn somewhere in that second round or sweet 16, elite eight, would be a bad matchup potentially for Marquette. I'm going Auburn as a bad, like a nightmare team for Marquette. Oh, it's, mm, I mean, it's going to, people don't think I'm crazy just because this game actually happened and it, it was on a neutral site court. I get that, but it was early in the season. And obviously both of these teams are a little bit different now. If Kevin McCullough is healthy, I like it. I know where you're going. Yep. I if like Kev, it. if Kevin McCullough is healthy, the way Johnny Fafey's been playing, he was not playing like he is now. What he was back in the Maui tournament when this game actually happened, I think Kansas would give Marquette issues in the tournament with our ability to just dominate the paint. We're okay with playing a fast-paced game. Defensively, we're going to do our best to lock them down and make them force into tough baskets. Dwayne Harris is going to try his absolute hardest to pressure the living shit out of Tyler Like And Kevin McCullough is going to do the exact same thing as well. Again, if he's healthy. They don't have a matchup for Dickinson. They either. don't have a matchup to Dickinson down low. Johnny Fofi is a completely different player than he was in the Maui tournament when this game happened earlier in the season in November. And... If Nick Timberlake can hit a couple threes, like he's been doing, starting to get that to that way again, like it was at Towson. If he can hit a couple threes, I think Kansas would beat Marquette in March. I, I completely agree. And how about this one? We talked about them. They're back in the tournament, Peyton, and they're playing well. I mean, well, they've lost two in a row now, so maybe they're not fully. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But Michigan State, 
Why yeah. couldn't Michigan State not Marquette out again? But I'm going Auburn. You're going Kansas. I like that. Um, let's just real quick. Our friend Jonathan Warner over at MakingMadness.com. His one seeds are Purdue as the overall number one, Houston, Connecticut, Arizona, the other ones, no surprise. Um, a couple of matchups. He does still have Michigan State as a nine play Mississippi State. That's a defensive slugfest right there. Um, that would be in the south region. You have Duke also at three in the south. Um, I'm peeking through. Kansas would be a two in the Midwest region with Purdue. Auburn as the four. Uh, Creighton as the three. South Carolina as a six. Honestly, though, if I'm a Jayhawk fan, I would take that bracket because you're you're a two playing South Dakota State, and then you're playing the winner of Colorado State Seton Hall, which could give some issues. Then you're in the Sweet 16 against either Creighton or maybe South Carolina. Virginia is an 11 play-in game there. Um, then you'd have like Purdue Auburn. Um, are, do you have his bracket pulled up right now? Yeah, I just pulled it up. Okay. okay. I think Any, anything stands out because Kentucky's back up to a five line out in the West. Yeah. I think if that matchup plays out, if, that, if it plays out just like he has it with Kansas being the two seed, I think Kansas, even though there would be some tough opponents in there, Colorado State or Seton Hall would give us issues in the second half or in the second round. That'd be intriguing. But whether it's Virginia, Colorado, South Carolina, Clayton, I think it would open up really nicely for us to get to the Elite Eight. And then after that, if we play Purdue, Auburn, like that top half is a little bit, it's definitely tougher than the bottom half, in my opinion. Because um, you still got FAU in there who has good guards, who's Jekyll or Hyde. You don't know which team's going to show up. And obviously, they're coming off of a big line, Final Four run last year. So they got some momentum. Or they got some confidence heading into the tournament. So that'd be intriguing. Uh, looking at the South, you know, Houston's in there. Houston has Houston has a very – Favorable bracket. Favorable. I was going to say easy, but, I mean, they got Tennessee in there as a 2C. How about, that, a in the, how about but, that in the South, though? Tennessee's the two that seven ten game would be Texas Tech Wake Forest. The winner of that would presumably play Tennessee, assuming that, of course they got by Moorhead State. Peyton, Wake Forest, Tennessee in the second round. We were just talking about that. How about that for electric? Yeah. And I tell you what, looking at this and looking at the South region, I always love picking 12-5 matchups. I think Indiana State would beat Utah State. I one I was about to say that. And then even how about that step further? The 13-4, the four-seed Wisconsin playing 13 Appalachian State, it could be like a in the second round, App State against Indiana State, winner goes sweet 16. Yeah. I mean, and, and if that happened, again, like Houston, would you'd have to think, boy, they're licking their lips at that, right? Looking at like the West region again, Arizona would be the one. You would have San Diego State the four, Kentucky the five. That would be a hell of a second-round game and something Kentucky would have a nightmare with with San Diego State's defense. But if they got by them – you know, if they got by them, let's say the Sweet 16 out of that bracket would have been Arizona, Kentucky in one part of that, and then, I don't know, like Iowa State's the three seed. You've got let, – let's just – damn, Florida's down there too. Florida Marquette second-round game would be a lot of fun. But let's say the Sweet 16 would be Arizona the one, Kentucky the five, and then Iowa State the three and Marquette the two. That's a wide-open regional. Like Kentucky yeah. could easily beat Arizona. Arizona could easily beat them. Iowa State could suffocate Marquette. I mean, a lot of fun potential matchups as we inch closer to March Madness here and the brackets being revealed. Anything else kind of stand out to you before we move shift away from this? 
No, I'm just look outside of like the top 16 teams. Uh, I'm just trying to look at, you know, the five seeds, Clemson, Utah State, Illinois, and Kentucky. I'm just trying to look at some teams like not in that top 16 range that can potentially make a, like a sweet 16 elite eight run. And I think this whole tournament. Florida, Florida's seventh seed. They, yeah, I, they can make that's it who I was, I was like. I was looking at Florida. I was looking at BYU as well with their offense and how well they play. Yep. Um, I think BYU and Florida can make an, a good run. Uh, Dayton, six seed. I think Dayton would beat Duke in the second round. Six versus three. I think Dayton can give Duke troubles. Um, they got good guards. And obviously, Dwayne Harms is going to do his – him and Philip Asso is going to match up well against each other. How about that, too? A play-in game, an 11 seed. Gonzaga, Ole Miss, say Gonzaga gets red hot still. They beat Ole Miss. They play Dayton, take Dayton down. They play Duke in the second round. That could be an upset written all over it. Despite what we've thought all year about Gonzaga, they're playing their best basketball right now. And that would be an interesting second round matchup of Duke and Gonzaga, which we haven't seen in a long time as far as this early. Um, If you are in all these brackets, if this was the official bracket today, who do you think of the one seeds would have the toughest time making it to the final four? The toughest time, I'd say it's either Purdue or Arizona. I completely agree. Because I, I think, obviously, Houston, I mentioned, you know, Auburn and the Sweet 16 would be, oh, wait, no, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, Houston, obviously, I mentioned has an easy reach. I was looking at something else. Auburn versus Purdue and the Sweet 16, that's what I was trying to look at, would be very, very intriguing to watch. Uh, Purdue, um, I think, would win that game, uh, but that would be very interesting. I mean, UConn, it's toughest opponent in their region to get to, like, the Sweet 16. The toughest would be Baylor, which would be intriguing again to watch, but I think they handle business there. Arizona, I mean, they got TCU in that region. They got Boise State in that region. San Diego State's going to muck it up defensively, and Caleb Love, if he doesn't have a good game, we'll see if he self-destructs, and we'll see if that happens in the tournament. But Arizona and Purdue has the toughest. Yeah, yeah, you talked about it. Arizona would have TCU, Boise, San Diego State, Kentucky, Iowa State. St. Mary's, maybe Marquette, Florida, Texas. That's a brutal one. Uh, Purdue, you've talked about them. Um, the East region with the Connecticut one, they would go through Boston. Like they would have mm. potentially Baylor, Illinois, Alabama, <laughs> North Carolina. Like that could be interesting too. His last, or sorry, his last four teams out, it looks like here, because I'd assume it says NIT yeah. one seeds would be last four out, would be Pittsburgh, Texas A&M, Villanova, Butler, I would assume is how he's going by here. Uh, yeah, I, I imagine so. So kind of an interesting, I, I don't know, that's kind of interesting, but a lot's going to shake up between now and Selection Sunday. Peyton, shout outs real quick so we can get the hell out of here. Uh, I'm sure you're probably going to shout out Justin Edwards. So of course, gonna, yeah. Yeah, a collective shout out to him. He played great. 28 points, only missed one free throw, zero fouls, zero turnovers in 29 minutes. I mean, that's a, almost a complete perfect game you would want out of a, of, of a player. So at any level, high school, college, or pros, that's incredible. Shout out to him. Um, shout out to Creighton for beating UConn um, in the way that they did. Uh UConn made a run to get it like to 10 points at one point. I think it was like 68 58, I think, at one point. And then Creighton did a good job, uh, called a timeout with like four to go. And then they just never closed after that. Hats off to them. Big win for them. Um, and obviously, I don't know who this person is, but shout out to whoever's on the Duke 
staff. Uh, I forgot. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know who it was, but whoever stepped in when that whole court question was happening and basically just immediately went over to Filipowski and helped him off the floor and basically protected him from the riot of fans or the Court rushing shout to whoever that is. Obviously, I don't know your name. I don't know what your affiliation is. Obviously, he had a Duke shirt on, so I imagine he's on the staff somewhat. Um, so shout out to whoever that is because that definitely could have been even more ugly than it was. So shout out to them for jumping in immediately and protecting one of their players. Completely agree. Yeah, Justin Edwards shout out. I mean, the kid, career day, 28 points, perfect from the floor. Shout out Cleef Battle from Arkansas and their big win over uh, rival Missouri yesterday. Dropped 42 on the Tigers, uh, they desperately needed that performance, and he went nuts, uh, 42 on Missouri. And then, shout out Hunter Salas, 29 in the upset win over Duke. Um, I think he's the ACC's best player. Him and R.J. Davis and Phil Pauski would be the three-headed monster there. So, gr- happy for that kid. Big-time performances. Peyton, wrapping up tonight's episode, went a little long, but we started off with a kind of controversial topic. We'll be back Thursday for episode 179, talking about all these games we previewed and looking ahead to the weekend. We're three weeks away from Selection Sunday. This time, three weeks from now, we will know the official field of 68. We'll be starting to preview our brackets, getting ready for the tournament. March is fast approaching. February is ending. It's the best time of the year for college basketball. For Peyton, for Trev, for Phil, and everybody here at ECB, we appreciate you. Drop a like, follow, comment, share, all that fun stuff you do on these podcasts and uh, YouTube videos. And until Thursday, we will catch you guys down the road. Thank you.